Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 17th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S to pre-order today. Polymarket is the leading information markets platform where you can trade on the most hotly debated topics, whether it's politics, coronavirus, current events, and more, all on the blockchain. With over $130 million traded on the platform, Polymarket is the go-to place to settle the biggest debates of the day. For a limited time, sign up with referral code UNCHAINED to get your first trade reimbursed up to $100. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins. Paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. The link is in the description. Today's topic is on-chain metrics for ETH, DeFi, and NFTs. Here to discuss are Richard Chen, General Partner at Crypto Venture Fund, One Confirmation, and Frederick Haga, Co-Founder and CEO at Dune Analytics. Welcome, Richard and Frederick. Great to be here. Good to be here. Thanks. When I first had the idea for this show, it was when crypto had kind of broadly been moving sideways for a while. And at least for Bitcoin, the on-chain analytics actually showed clear movement from weak hands to strong hands or long-term holders or hodlers, depending on <laughs> your terminology. And I got curious about what on-chain analytics were showing for ETH and related assets. However, since then, actually, ETH has been on an upswing. And to my mind, largely, that's been driven by the adoption of EIP-1559, which had an effect on the monetary policy, which we will describe later in the show, and also driven by NFT activity. So at the time of this recording, which is Friday, August 13th, the price of ETH is roughly $3,000 up from the low of $2,000 range a month ago. And that's somewhat remarkable because at the moment, the current language for crypto tax regulation in the U.S. does not bode well for developers in the U.S. However, um, I think, you know, as we'll see in the show, the on-chain analytics really, um, you know, maybe are kind of like divorced from from all that activity. So Richard and Frederick, why don't you each start with where you think the market is when it comes to ETH and why the price has risen this last month? And um, why don't we start with Richard? Yeah. Um, so first, I'll caveat by saying I'm not a trader, so I'm not 
making any short-term price predictions. Um, but I will say that uh, a lot of people have undervalued 1559. Um, there's just kind of a general lack of knowledge on how that affects the monetary policy of, of ETH um, versus like compared to like the Bitcoin having uh, where people, uh, I guess, institutions and people outside of crypto generally knew what the having was and how that was going to affect Bitcoin. Um, so there's sort of like uh, an, an, an information asymmetry that I've seen uh, from talking to like both institutions and like even like people in crypto, um, which I, I think explains uh, part of the recent price action. And Frederick, what about you? Yeah, I think I, I pretty much agree. It seems like you still get kind of these ketchup type of effects uh, on the information uh, on some of this sort of less accessible things going on. And suddenly everybody's all, all over it. And, and, and then you get these huge uh, run-ups uh, because suddenly there's headlines everywhere about this new change, uh, while most sort of retail investors don't necessarily understand or see it coming, even though in theory that information has been public for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And probably, you know, the Ethereum community, um, you know, there's kind of like that hardcore group. Um, but you're right. I think the institutions are the ones um, that really move the needle when it comes to price. Well, also whales. Um, <laughs> but all right. So before we get into the meat of the show, um, we want to just highlight for the listeners what it is about on-chain metrics that make this space different from traditional finance. So Richard and Frederick, can you explain why it is that you like to look at on-chain metrics and how you view that as being different from traditional finance? I think it's worth thinking about for just for a moment how sort of traditional finance works and, and data. And essentially what happens there is you have kind of real-time data on trading of, of assets on, on exchanges, right? Um, but beyond that, sort of all the other stuff, the economic activity that goes on in companies and, and so forth, that's siloed in a company, uh, sits on their like proprietary servers and systems. And then sort of way later, like three months or four months or whatever, after it happens, it goes into like this PDF and, and a public company will disclose sort of their numbers and, and the actual financial activity that, that happened to them. Um, and then sort of that is, there's a whole industry in on like Wall Street and whatnot around sort of analyzing this and understanding what's going on. And there's like people paying or hedge funds, for instance, paying tons of money to get like a slight information advantage by figuring out something from like, you know, earth photos or whatever it might be. Um, and then on sort of in the crypto world, you have these financial products that's obviously built on the blockchain, which is like a shared public backend for the world. And anyone can look into it. And this is like profound <laughs> implications for like just how information works around what's going on so it's interesting because you essentially then can with something like doing or some other analytics tool you can you know go in and analyze and dissect this data the way you want from the activity that happens and you have then kind of financial products and that actual financial activity that would usually go in like a pdf three months later is occurring right there and then. Like there's actual revenues or you know financial value being moved around. Um, and that means that you could directly, <laughs> publicly understand what's happening um, in this financial system, which is just absolutely radically different from, from the existing world and, and uh, super duper exciting. And I think still 
very much underutilized and under uh, appreciated by by a lot of folks. Um, and I think you can even think of it as like the, the public in crypto has for free access to better data tools about what's going on in the systems than probably any bank CEO or regulator in the traditional world. Like if you're the CEO of a big bank, like what assets do you hold and what's the exposure and all that? And like, you probably have a pretty good dashboard for that, but it's highly likely that it's actually not as good and as uh, sort of comprehensive as, as what you can find on on-chain metrics because anyone in the world can go and analyze this live. Um, so I think that's incredibly exciting and, and, and like one of the second order effects of, of crypto that's still uh, kind of not quite uh, proliferated um, into to the market and world yet, but it's uh, super, super interesting. And I also want to add like the people who recognize this the most are actually the founders, like the DeFi founders who came from the traditional finance world and like saw both worlds. Um, so a good example is uh, Hugh Carp from Nexus Mutual for where before he started Nexus, uh, for 15 years, he was a C- C- uh, CFO of Munich, a large insurance company. And then whenever uh, he shows uh, Nexus's uh, KPIs and dashboards to his friends in the traditional world, they're all like blown away because like those people like can never find a dashboard um, for their traditional insurer about KPIs such as like active premiums in force, um, like price to book, um, like all of these like fundamental KPIs, which are just like hidden in like quarterly PDFs. Whereas uh, because Nexus Mutual is on chain on Ethereum, you can get all that data in real time. And it's just, um, it just like amazes them, like how much transparency there is uh, for DeFi. Yeah. And one other thing I would add to it is it's not even just the on-chain metrics, but even just being able to see how the community is talking in the forums because normally for a company or whatever, the decision makers, whatever their thoughts are, would be um, hidden. They wouldn't be something that would be just available to any random uh, shareholder. But in a crypto community, you can kind of see like, what is a community saying? Where is sentiment going? Like that kind of thing. And so that also is another difference. Um, all right. So let's dive now into these metrics. And I actually... So even though... You know, the topic is kind of like ETH broadly, which is composed of a few different topics. I really want to start with NFTs because that's where the action is nowadays. And when I was doing research for this episode, my mind was just kind of blown because, um, you know, if you've been listening to my show, I haven't really done much on NFTs except for Axie Infinity. And so I was just like, whoa. Um, But anyway, all right. So what are the notable aspects you're seeing in the NFT market right now, especially when it comes to on-chain metrics? Well, first... um... Like OpenSea's like uh their KPIs have like completely exploded in like monthly volume. I, I saw the other day that uh there's like only thirty something uh companies in the world that have like over a billion in uh GMV. Um and like OpenSea is like on pace uh to be like one of those. Um and like they the company's only been around for like about three years. So I guess a lot of the volume growth has been driven by like PFPs, which are like these avatar projects. Um that you know people like to trade and speculate on and also like use as their avatars and like OpenSea's like then benefiting from just being the marketplace for uh, search and discovery um for these avatars. Uh so that's been like one of the big trends in NFTs in the last uh, few weeks. And what is a PFP? 
uh, a profile picture. Oh, okay. I think what's crazy to see with the the OpenSea volume is how it it shot up to, I guess, around a hundred million in in trading volume a month in uh, like early this year, and it felt like that was like really an explosive moment, and then came a little bit down in in like April or something, and then now it's like seven hundred million so far in August. So it's it's like it's insane when you see some of these hockey sticks sort of play out where, where you, you think that, oh, that, that was like the, the peak. And then that just absolutely dwarfed um, a couple of months uh, later. Um, so, wow. Wait, mm-hmm. so it's already 700 billion for August? Million. Uh, yes, yeah, 765 million or, yeah, uh, 700... in August, which it's only been about uh, half the month so far. That's crazy because the volume in July was 325 million. So... <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's already more than doubled uh, July, and it's only been uh, less than half of the month. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And I did also see a Glassnode report that said that sixty-three thousand addresses interacted with OpenSea in July, but that in the first three days of August alone, already twenty-eight thousand addresses had interacted with OpenSea. So at that, and like now, it's up to uh, ninety-two thousand uh, with the, the first half of August. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, like, uh, all of their KPIs have like uh, dwarfed, um, like, all of August's like KPIs have dwarfed July's, and like, it's not uh, been the end of the month yet. Yeah, we're not even halfway through. Uh, and just also, in case people don't know, KPI stands for Key Performance Indicator. You can um, see it in, so, in Richard's public view on that one. It's all out there. It, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which we'll put we'll put that in the show notes. Um, so when you see all that, like, you know, do you, do you get a sense of what is driving this interest in NFTs or who's getting into the space or like why it's growing so exponentially? Yeah, I I have this mental model that, uh, DeFi is crypto for elites and like NFTs is like crypto for normies. And like, the reason I say that is like for DeFi, uh, there's just kind of a higher barrier to entry. Like one gas fees, uh, price out a lot of people and like two, uh, there's a lot of like financial vocabulary you need to know. Like you need to know like what derivatives are, like what's a perpetual swap, like how options work. Um, and there's like a lot of trading terminology, which is why a lot of the DeFi activity has been driven by whales and traders and like more sophisticated people. Um, whereas NFTs, um, like when I explained NFTs to my parents, like they understood it immediately, uh, just because it's something very relatable, uh, to like most like everyday people um, because you're, you're just like buying cu- uh, culture and like, you know, investing in like athletes, art, music, entertainment. Um, and like, that's just something that uh, retail people like understand better, uh, which is why if you look at like kind of mainstream media coverage, um, you saw like NFTs cross the chasm to like mainstream attention, like much faster than uh, DeFi. And can you tell us how it was that you explained NFTs to your parents? Because yeah, I'm just curious to hear how you would explain it to a non-crypto person. Yeah, I, I think like the best analogy is like collectibles, uh, like things like sports cards, Beanie Babies, um, like just assets that you find like have like sentimental value with too. Um, and like it could also have like monetary value, except uh, rather than like kind of like a physical asset, it's just um, like a digital like file um, on the blockchain. And And I'd say also conceptually, I think it's pretty easy for most people to to get to the conclusion that a lot of art is just sort of scarcity and 
like a, a claim on something that's scarce, um, that that would matter, not sort of per se the physical object or whatever. Um, and I think there's this interesting analogy where it's like if you perfectly manage to recreate like a uh, Da Vinci painting, like to down to the atom, would you want the original that's like done by uh, Da Vinci, or do you want like the perfect replica, which is the exact same physical thing? Like, obviously, you want the original, um, but there's nothing physical that's that separating those two, right? Um, and I feel like that's even though like you can send a JPEG file wherever who, to whoever, um, that's not sort of uh, the the scarcity in art. It's not about distribution and production first and foremost. It's about authenticity and, and um, knowing that, that you have something that others can't have. Um, and I think that's why NFTs are actually not that hard to grasp um, because it, it's kind of hard to dispute the claims I just made, I think. Yeah. And I think also when you have that kind of emotional response to something, then for whoever that person is that has that response, it could be what to them is like a priceless object. And so in a way that um, means that like the prices of these might seem outrageous to other people, but to that person, it's, it's worth it. And that's really all that matters. Um, so, you know, as we were talking about these open sea metrics really, really show that it's, uh, ramping up very, very quickly. Um, and I just wondered, do you think that this level of interest is sustainable or do you think that we're kind of in the beginning of a bubble or at maybe at the peak of a bubble? I don't, I don't know. Um, what's your sense of where this market activity is going? Um, well, the last time like uh, OpenSea's KPIs, like when kind of hockey stick was in March and then, you know, people thought that it was bubble and then it went down for a little bit. Uh, but it, it was like the shortest bubble ever. And like, like two months later, then it, like, it's like reached new all time highs. So uh, I, I think like, like this is like a huge um, new market that's like uniquely enabled and like OpenSea has like the upside to be like the next eBay or even like have a higher like market cap than eBay. Um, just like how Coinbase has like a higher market cap than like traditional brokerages. So uh, I think there's still a lot of upside potential for NFTs and OpenSea broadly. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of a counter position and, and say that I think that on the long time horizon, I think uh, what Richard is saying is makes sense and, and is indeed true. But um, I do get some sort of, of the same feelings as like 2017 ICOs where it's like, there's a lot of opportunistic folks uh, hopping on right now. And I, it seems like there's some like relatively low effort projects that sort of end up turning into money for people uh, that might not be around for, for the long term. But uh, anyway, I also think that like there's some really proper uh, long term stuff being created. And, and eventually, I think like the, these metrics will be dwarfed again. But, but my sense is that uh, the current sort of Hype might will probably sort of cool off a little bit uh, for for some time mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and I yeah generally like the volume like graphs it's like it goes up and then it goes down a little bit, but like each new all time high like dwarfs like the previous all time high. So um, it's not like a perfectly uh, up into the right hockey stick graph, but like it kind of has like mini bubbles where like the long term cycle uh, is still um, like up into the right. Yeah, and what I would say here is that there's probably a difference between like a bubble for OpenSea, meaning that the the market for OpenSea could continue to grow and grow and grow, 
but for individual NFT drops, it might be that the prices for those are inflated. Um, you know, whereas like, you know, the, the total addressable market for NFTs, maybe probably we've barely scratched the surface for it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually did then want to ask you about that, uh, for the individual NFTs. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you believe it is that makes these NFTs or, or, or do you th- believe that these NFTs will keep their value over time? Or do you think that right now what's happening is that the prices are popping now, but that over the long term, they'll kind of deflate? Like, do you feel like this is sort of a situation where people are like, like a gold rush and they're just kind of trying to flip these NFTs? Uh, I say 99% of NFTs won't keep their value long term. Um, I think it's uh, going to like consolidate into like a winner take all market. And like, that's generally true of like the traditional world where like LeBron James, like cards are like worth orders of magnitude more than like some random uh, NBA player or like uh, a painting by Picasso is worth more than like some random artist. Uh, like the blue chip NFTs, um, I'd say right now are like one of one crypto art on super rare by artists like uh, X copy, Palak Hakatao and others. And then. Uh, for collectibles, I think the big three are CryptoPunks, MeBits, and Board Apes. Um, and like, uh, the, like the long tail of collectibles, like what I've seen is like mostly, uh, traders and like flipping right now. Uh, what, yeah. What do you think of this Ether Rock thing? Uh, I haven't heard of that one. Oh, the, the rocks that they're just different shades, that they're all the same rock. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of these, uh, avatars, yeah, projects. So it's like addition of 10,000, uh, each has like different attributes. <laughs> Uh, and then people pay like 2000 Gwei to like mint them, like when it drops. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> very 2017. <laughs> well, but, but actually the ether rock thing was from 2017 and then like people recently rediscovered the smart contract and then they finished out minting the rest of the rocks. That, <laughs> that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, but I think that there's in terms of the, the value maintaining, I think also, and, and I think like Richard is correct in, in the sense that like a lot of art is like you get this winner takes all as in a lot of culture. But um, I think that's also an aspect of this like a thousand to true fans thing uh, that like if you have a thousand fans on the internet, you can probably make a living of, of what you do because like if you get $10 from each, then suddenly it sort of matters. Um, and I think that could be the case for a lot of the creators that are not necessarily... Uh, you know, huge or going to be huge for the next next Drake or whatever, but they could still now actually issue something and 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 have a if they have a fan base of thousand fans, um, they could like actually sell something scarce to them and and have them as part of their community and actually make money of it. Um, and I think that's pretty exciting. Um, and just the fact that like any creator can issue some authentic sort of work, like previously in in music. Typically, you, you kind of have to do merch or you have to do concerts, right? Because that's the only thing that's actually scarce. Um, but now that you can say, like, you have this gold version of a song or, or whatever it might be, you can actually sort of financially tap into your audience globally without having to sort of do the, the physical uh, thing. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and to a large extent, a lot of merch and whatnot is just a proxy for uh you know, scarce uh, thing uh, that the, the artist created. Um, and that's especially true for video artists, uh, so visual artists, um, whereas uh, before, like the primary uh, revenue stream for visual artists was commissions. Like they would do 
um, an ad for a Fortune 500 company. I kind of do the visuals for that. And like, that's how they made a living. Um, because like these uh, digital artists uh, don't uh, do sell paintings or physical um, like works of art. But now with NFTs, they can actually sell like basically the digital equivalent of paintings. And like, that's a more like one-to-one uh, like translation of like value, like their creative activity and like how much like value they're getting out of it rather than having to rely on like commissions or like some of these like other proxies uh, for making a living. So like that's huge for these artists just to have like a new uh, business model for them. Yeah. I, so, you know, what we were saying earlier about how 99% of these may not retain their value in a way, you know, that's just for the consumer or the investor or whatever you want to call them. But when it comes to the creator, actually, they're gaining a lot more value than they would through traditional routes. So um, as a creator myself, I would kind of applaud that model. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, for sure. So um, now let's kind of talk about, you know, how this activity is affecting the different blockchains. Um, Richard, I did see your partner, Nick Tomeno, tweet, quote, NBA Top Shots, $350 million plus in venture funding is an awesome product, but there's now six NFT projects with roughly zero in venture funding doing consistently more volume. Why? Ethereum. And then I saw that Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures and Roham Giragoslu of Dapper Labs, which created NBA Top Shot, uh, kind of got into a little tweet discussion with him about it. And, you know, Fred said, oh, it's because it's not NBA season and Flow has new offerings in store. And Roham said, quote, none of us would be talking about NFTs if Top Shot was on Ethereum. It would have failed out of the gate with impossibly poor UX. So when you look at these metrics, I was curious, um, what do you think is the future of these different blockchains that support NFTs? Like, do you guys think that Ethereum will continue to remain in the lead or do you think other chains will take market share or maybe even overtake Ethereum? I think at the end of the day, it comes down to like scalability and like how much gas price like prices out um, like retail users. Uh, So I see Ethereum as great for like high dollar value, low throughput use cases. So like one of one crypto art where you're going to spend five, six figures on a piece of art. It doesn't matter if you're paying $20 to bid on the artwork because like you're, and you end up paying like way more. Um, but for these like in-game assets and like these maybe like five, $10, uh, NFTs, uh, then uh, it makes more sense to be on a scalable blockchain. And we've actually seen a big explosion of usage on, uh, Polygon, which is an Ethereum sidechain. So like OpenSea recently, a few months ago, they, uh, deploy their contracts to Polygon. So now, um, creatives can like, uh, create like mint new NFTs on Polygon and like the gas fees there are maybe like one, two cents. So it's, it's negligible. Uh, so there's actually a game called, uh, Zed Run on Polygon that's been, uh, taking off. And it's like these like horses that you race. Um, and like they've been driving a lot of the NFT activity and volume on Polygon. Um, so overall, I'd say there's definitely room, uh, for other chains, uh, that enable like scalability and like new use cases of NFTs. And um, I think like Polygon is one. Um, Axie Infinity has their own uh, layer two uh, called Ronin. Um, and there's also Flow. Um, but those tend to be the big chains I can think of. I think I think there's like a lot of the same problems as with other Ethereum alternatives uh, in the sense like, for instance, you, you would need like funds to buy this stuff. Like if you want to buy an NFT on 
on Ethereum, like there's a high likelihood that you actually have like some ETH or stable coins in the wallet that you sort of could use to to fund that. Um, and then sort of in in this other world of a new chain, then it's it's kind of hard to get started. Um, but also, I guess some of these are kind of taking a different route and then trying to reach audiences that don't currently have an Ethereum wallet, and then that could make a lot of sense. So I think it's uh, still very early. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited to see sort of what the metrics look like by the end of this year on, on these new layer twos uh, on Ethereum and see what the usage actually look like. It's still very sort of preliminary uh, and then kind of hard to understand exactly how much usage they're actually getting um, and see that across all the different systems. Uh, and that's also something we're working on at Dune um, to see just like stack up against each other, uh, all the layer twos and the different layer ones and see where the activity is actually moving to. Okay. Yeah. I do have some questions about layer twos, um, but we'll, we'll kind of cover that a little bit later in the show. I actually did want to ask one other thing about kind of like NFTs from the buyer perspective. Um, you know, I did notice that like in the last 30 days, NFT secondary sales have doubled. It was about 15,000 a month ago. It's more than 30,000 as of Wednesday. Um, you know, what do you think accounts for that? And maybe it's just the fact that there's more NFTs, but, um, do you, see that secondary sales will continue to be a big part of the NFT activity on an ongoing basis? Or do you think it's just now because we, we may be in this kind of hype cycle and people are sort of like flipping them? Um, I think secondary sales are healthy. And like this is really pronounced in like crypto art. So uh, August is actually the first month uh, that's like secondary sales eclipse primary sales for super rare, which is uh, the largest uh, crypto art marketplace. And I think the reason is because like the OG artists, like X Copy, Coldy, Hackatow, and others, uh, their floor prices all like rose dramatically. Uh, so like kind of the NFT community is like kind of coming to consensus that these are like the OG one of one crypto art that are going to be good source of value. And that's why there's been a lot of big uh, secondary sales. Like if, if a platform uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, secondary sales, then uh, it's mostly just like artists doing drops. Um, but like those NFTs uh, aren't going to have, don't have much value if they're not being um, resold uh, at like significant uh, markups because uh, people don't think of them as like OG artworks. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I guess we'll sort of have to see over time um, how this plays out for, for some of the other names that aren't the OGs. All right. So um, in a moment, we're going to now switch topics and touch on DeFi, which I know a lot of people are interested in. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stable coins. 
When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Today's sponsor is Polymarket, the world's leading information markets platform where you can trade on the most pressing global questions, all on the blockchain. Choose from a variety of markets. Will Cardano support smart contracts by October? Will the U.S. have more than 200,000 COVID cases per day before 2022? Will Trump run for president again? With over $130 million traded on the platform, Polymarket is the go-to place to settle the biggest debates of the day. Want tomorrow's news today? Use Polymarket to see real-time data on what the market thinks will happen. No fake news, no pundits without skin in the game. Think you know more than the market? Trade on your beliefs and earn a return if you're right. For a limited time, sign up with referral code UNCHAINED to get your first trade reimbursed up to $100. Go to the description and click on the link to get started. polymarket.co slash unchained. Back to my conversation with Richard Chen and Frederick Haga. So for DeFi in the last few months, it's been in a little bit of a lull down from some of the highs in May, uh, but over the last month, it's actually risen steadily. So what's your take on what's happening now with DeFi? So I think it's it's kind of established itself. It's a pretty solid uh, position, if you will. If you look at, for instance, uh, DEX trading volumes that absolutely exploded like over essentially the last year, um, started from to, uh, and then it started, it peaked in May, but now we see, so essentially in May it was $170 billion traded on decentralized exchanges. And essentially all the months before May and now after May, we're at around $80 billion. Um, so it's not, even though it's sort of down from that peak, it's still like a very substantial amount to just put it in perspective. If you look at like the May numbers, cherry picking a little bit, but in 2019, it was 250 million. Um, in 2020, it was 1 billion. So up, up 4x. And then now in 2021, it was 170 billion, which is like up 170x uh, over the last year, right? So you've had this absolutely undeniable rise in these metrics where, where all of this went from you know, a promising toy to actually showing volumes that, you know, Uniswap was over uh, Coinbase on, on certain days. Um, and essentially, it's managed to establish itself on, on that position where, where this is something that's been very actively used and, and the trading volumes are significant on all months and then all days, um, despite sort of fluctuations. And, and that's frankly also what, what happens in uh, for traditional financial markets when, when there's... Uh, Price volatility, the volumes go up, and that the same thing is is playing out in in the deck space. To me, that only sort of tells us that that this is actually sort of being used as as any other financial uh, markets, right? Um, which is uh, pre- pretty amazing. It, it's really only two years since it was just like this tiny thing with a few hundred uh, million dollars in trading volume, um, and now it's it's undeniably here and staying. So that's. Uh, I think that's at least uh, really telling uh, of, of sort of the, the DeFi space, even though it's still, you know, up up and down. Richard, do you want to add anything? 
yeah, I, I think like DeFi activity largely just follows like price action. So, uh, you know, when, uh, there was a lot of trading activity, like when prices were high in like April and May, and then it's, it's pretty, uh, correlated with that. And, okay. and out and loans, I think outstanding loans now are like around 21 billion. And that's up about three X over the last year. So uh, a year ago, it was around seven billion dollars. Um, so it's like significant decrease, but, but kind of less exponential than, than the DEX side. Um, but it's like keeps growing and kind of same with stable coins. I think the issuance now is around 80 billion in, in stable coins on, on Ethereum. And it's like consistently, I think around a hundred billion a day that's being transferred. Let me double check that I'm saying this correctly. Yeah, no, sorry. It's, it's about 20 billion, uh, in like daily trading, like transfer volume of, of, uh, stable coins. Um, so I'd say sort of all of these things are going up and to the right, even, even though at sort of a various pace. Yeah. One other thing that I want to ask about was, so Richard, I know that your Dune analytics board has this like, a dashboard, I guess, for number of DeFi users. But I have to quibble with the phrasing there because is it really users? It's like wallets, right? Because if yeah, unique addresses, yeah. Uh, with I have the disclaimer at the top uh, of the dashboard because like that's always the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, just, you can why never why post just... these stats without getting that one right. <laughs> but why don't you? Yeah, why don't yeah, you yeah. just make I, the language? I always get like uh, Twitter mentions because why don't you that? just make yeah. the language more accurate? Just say unique uh, well, address. It's, it's, it's already named like DeFi use, like it's the link uh, for the dashboard. But can't you change the title anyway, even though the link, the URL is the old link? Yeah, well, I have the disclaimer already in the title. Okay, well, yeah, I, I would actually just change the language, but <laughs> <laughs> but you you do whatever you want. Um, but I did wonder, so I, you know, I don't know what we can glean from that, but like, do you actually think that the number of users has increased or do you think it's just the same kind of core group of people that are, you know, kind of being good with their OPSEC and, you know, using different wallets or what's going on there? I mean, like number of users has definitely increased. I mean, you can discount it by um, maybe like a factor of five or like however, um, like what you think the average number of uh, wallets that a user uses. Um, I think like mainly because, uh, you know, during DeFi summer, when you had like yield farming, all these crazy interest rates, that brought a lot of new people into DeFi. That was like responsible for like the first uh, part of the exponential growth. Uh, so like the number of uh, users like in DeFi has still like increased significantly over the last year. And right now, would you say that the DeFi space is still attracting new users? And if so, what's bringing them in? Uh, I think yield is a big thing, just because like you know we're in a zero uh, interest rate environment, uh, and like when you can earn like ten to fifteen percent uh, APYs on stable coins uh, in DeFi. Uh, right now, um, that's just attractive to a lot of people. Um, so I, I know of like friends personally outside of crypto who have like started to move money into crypto to like earn those yields. Um, I expect that to that trend to like continue over time. In uh, one inches uh, Dune dashboard, they they track uh, how many addresses the, that they have as users that are new or uh, old, and I think that so they have basically the second most users after Uniswap. So. Uniswap is at like around 130,000 addresses per week. And I think one inch does about 30,000. Um, and looking at their stats, they have about, about 40% are, are existing. 
and uh, 60% are, um, are actually new. So whether that means that people are getting new addresses or it's actually new users, of course, you, you can never exactly know. It's at least not the, just the same addresses you know, interacting all the time. Okay. Hmm. So yeah, it's hard to, to conclude anything. And well, one other thing that I wanted to ask about, so we did talk about DEXs and Frederick, you did make a few comments about lending, but I did want to ask, like, are there any other trends that you are seeing there? Lending is um, interesting because in one way it moves a little bit slower, you know, because you need to have collateral and, and you can have sort of, uh, you need to be more careful with risks and volatility than, than in sort of the, the trading space, right? So um, I think that in that sense, it's like fewer assets and, and can just not same extent sort of um, shift around uh, super quickly. Um, one thing that I can mention that was pretty cool, I, I mentioned, you know, how these, this open data enables new cases. And, and one thing Maker has been doing recently is like building a Dune dashboard with their actual financial statement, uh, like you kind of would see for a bank. So they have a balance sheet, they have profit and loss, uh, and you can see this live from the from the blockchain. And one interesting thing you can see is that in May, they did like 30 million in revenues. And I think 20-ish of that was lending income. And then 10 million on top of that was liquidation income. Um, and then it went back to, uh, you know, just being lending income and not that much liquidations. Um, so that's like a fascinating thing you can now actually see uh, in the data how sort of these systems uh, revenues uh, in addition to kind of their exposure and risks actually are affected by by events. All right. Yeah, this is uh, clearly, as we were talking about earlier, something that's new and different. Um, so then now just a general question. So, you know, obviously we started discussing NFTs because that's at the moment where all this activity is all this activity is. Um, but, you know, I did think last year that, oh, maybe DeFi will be one of the drivers of the next bull market. Um, but at the moment, I'm kind of like, oh, maybe it's going to be NFTs. Uh, so what's your sense of where DeFi is headed for the rest of the year and what role it will play in this bull market? Uh, I think the next thing in DeFi is uh, derivatives. Um, because I, I think a lot of the spot markets and like fundamental building blocks in DeFi have already been laid down. So you have like, Lending and borrowing like Compound Ave, you have spot markets like Uniswap. Um, but there are still like spaces and, and derivatives in like DeFi are still wide open. Like, for example, options is still like a wide open problem. And like no uh, project to date has like uh, in DeFi has like captured significant market share in options uh, just because it's a very hard problem to solve. And you can't map uh, traditional finance options like how those are designed one to one on DeFi. Um, so. Um, we also, we just invested in a project called, uh, Primitive, uh, which is launching in a few months. Uh, and like they're, uh, going to be like the Uniswap of options in terms of like creating, um, like a very zero to one AMM in terms of how these are priced. Um, outside of options, there's also structured products, um, just ways to make it easier for a retail to earn yield or get like a, a exposure to like an ETF like product. So. Like one very successful structured product is uh, the DeFi Pulse Index. It's basically like one token where you own like a basket of blue chip uh, DeFi coins like Comp, Uni, Aave, MKR, and others. Um, and then you also have, you can also have structured products like leverage products. So like 2x uh, Bitcoin and 2x ETH products where you don't have to go on 
compound and like manage your margin accounts. Uh, you can also have inverse tokens. So if you look at like all the top most widely traded products um, in traditional finance on like NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange, like a lot of them are structured products like QQQ, SPY and others. And I, I think um, that space is going to continue to grow in DeFi. I, and I very much agree on, on the like index products, for instance, I think it's super exciting. Uh, and it's a way for people that are less immersed in, in the space to get exposure to what's going on. Like if you, you know, you maybe have some Bitcoin, you maybe have some ETH, but then like getting on to like the crazy world of all of these various tokens and coins can be, be really hard. And, and uh, then if you can just take exposure to, then it like, it's kind of the same dynamic that most people have with the stock market, right? Where they, they don't necessarily care about stock picking or uh, sort of what they want to invest in. They just want to sort of have exposure to the whole thing. Um, and that is really, really cool to, to have that for the, the token economy as well. Like you mentioned, like DeFi Pulse Index, they've been growing really, really nicely. Um, and they also, for instance, have like really cool charts on incentivized versus unincentivized supply of like users. So they track and you can see like the share of, um, unincentivized supply like really taking over uh, over time so they started out with like 90 percent incentivized where people get tokens to to be part of the system right and then eventually it turns into all, all organic um which is which is really cool to see all right so one uh thing i want to ask about this is um maybe less about on-chain metrics and just sort of where all this is headed but i did see this tweet by chow wang formerly of masari and he said, the final form of the most interesting crypto apps will be those lying at the intersection of finance, gaming, social networking, and community engagement. There will no longer be any dichotomy between these verticals. Every app will be nothing and everything at once. <laughs> I wondered what you thought of that statement and if you even could think of any examples. Like, it sounds super interesting to me, but I was like, what does that even look like? And, and I didn't even know if it was just something that sounded cool or if you know, other people thought there was something to it. Uh, I think it sounds very buzzwordy and something that could get a lot of retweets, uh, but I, I can't really think of an app. Um, or maybe it's just like way too early to like think of uh, like new use cases uh, enabled by all of these different uh, trends and like lie at the intersection of all these trends. Project, yeah. what's your take? I guess uh, I kind of agree, but I think that there's definitely like something very deep to the fact that you can sort of program scarcity and value into sort of any type of application. And obviously, I guess, furthermore, there's been this like metaverse uh, word that suddenly is everywhere uh, because Zuckerberg mentioned it and, and whatnot. Um, and I think it like seems likely that sort of NFTs will, will play a role in, in like a more internet kind of native world uh, and, and ownership around that. Um, and then sort of, Obviously, the tradability of these things are, are kind of inherent in what's happening on, on the blockchain. So um, I think sort of, yes, uh, there's there's a high probability that some of this stuff will sort of meet uh, in ways that it couldn't and wouldn't uh, previously. But uh, I guess also like there's, uh, you know, you need to build a nice experience for users and, and, and do something novel that people actually care about. Um, and, and that's kind of, yeah. Not, not trivial and, and uh, it can take a long time and uh, I don't think it's going like, to change everything overnight. Um, yeah, the only 
example that I could think of that sort of seemed, you know, to to be a description or, or to to be an example of this description was Axie Infinity because so obviously at its core it's a game, but then because um, the axes are scarce now, you know, there are these teams that are um, loading out their axes for people that want to get in, and so in that regard, that is, you know, these elements of social networking and community engagement. Uh, I guess Axie Infinity maybe is still listening, li- missing the finance piece, although I guess you could say like play to earn or just the fact that you earn money from it is finance. So I don't know. Anyway, that was like the only example I could think of. But all right. Um, so now let's talk uh, about Ethereum because that's kind of uh, where, you know, most of this activity is happening. And obviously we did talk about how EIP-1559 was this big change that happened on Ethereum. And so for people who may have missed the episodes I did on EIP-1559 and on ETH as ultrasound money, um, so essentially now with this London hard fork upgrade, the transaction fees are now broken out into base fees for transactions, which end up getting burned, and then priority fees, which are tips that go to the miners. So in this first week after the London hard fork, $100 million worth of ETH was burned and Glassnode reports that that's about 35% of the issuance. So um, I'm curious to hear, Richard and Frederick, what were your expectations with this upgrade and how has the reality compared? Yeah, 1559 uh, solves the big problem. Like the big question that people always ask is like, how does ETH capture value? And like now with 1559, like ETH directly captures value from all the economic activity that are happening on chain. So you can actually now apply, you know, real world, the traditional finance, uh, like, valuation models to Ethereum based on fees and like how much uh, transaction volume economic activity is happening. Um, I actually just created a Dune dashboard yesterday uh, looking at our portfolio companies and like how much they contribute uh, to like ETH being burned. Um, It's interesting that OpenSea's um, is like leading by far. They've burned uh, over 4,600 ETH uh, since um, 1559 launched, which is um, about 13 million, I think. Dollar in dollars. So OpenSea is like one of the largest um, like sources of revenue for uh, Ethereum. Yeah, um, it's it's been really cool to see uh, it play out, and I think also it's a kind of an important data point in the evolution of Ethereum in general. Like it, it's only so often that there's actually a hard fork, um, and uh, throughout that, these like relatively radical changes can be done. I guess like a lot of Bitcoin folks will will think that this is a Really bad thing, but but sort of given the the trajectory and sort of social contract uh, where this project is headed, um, it's I think it's encouraging to see that something like this can actually be sort of figured out uh, in an open way and and decided upon, even though it's kind of controversial and then um, actually implemented pretty smoothly. Um, so that's also I think a big takeaway, and maybe also a lot of why the sort of the price action beyond. Of course, the new sort of issues, um, but the fact that this project can actually co- coordinate um, and, and upgrade itself uh, over time. Yeah, one thing I will say is, you know, about how OpenSea is um, the top burner of ETH since the upgrade. Um, you know, I was looking at the times when the net issuance on Ethereum turned negative in this past week, and it was basically during NFT drops. And um 
you know, it's funny because in one of the episodes they recorded, like I hadn't even heard of one of the NFT trials. Well, actually, for, so for the research for this episode, I actually hadn't heard of any of these until having to do research for these episodes. Um, one was called COVID Punks. The other was Art Blocks. The last one was Fluff World NFTs. And they're, it's like digital rabbits. Um, <laughs> but uh, the point is that it's so similar to the ICO craze when during the ICOs, the usage on the blockchain would be so um, congested that, you know, all these transactions were failing. And um, like, even if you had some other transaction that you were trying to do that was not even related to the ICO, it wouldn't, you know, go through. And during that time, you know, it was just that Ethereum wasn't really usable. Um, But here it is now that... Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how it's affecting usage, but, um, but regardless, like the demand for ETH at that moment for usage of these, the space on these Ethereum blocks is helping then add value to ETH by making the net issuance negative. So, um, so at least, you know, I agree that EIP 1559 is like a, a change that should be beneficial to the Ethereum price in that regard. Um, so one other thing I want to ask about was, you know, oftentimes with Bitcoin, when looking on chain metrics, you can kind of see when uh, Bitcoin is moving to offline cold wallets. And um, this is often a proxy for like institutions or whales that are buying Bitcoin, basically. And the blocks Frank Chaparro recently reported that institutions are demanding ETH and it's actually causing firms like Nidig and Fidelity to expand into ETH. And as we know, uh, in Coinbase's second quarter, ETH trading volumes did top Bitcoin volumes for the first time. So um, Frank reported that his sources were saying that the reason these institutions are having to expand into ETH is, or, or wanting to expand into ETH is that they're looking for yield. So I wondered, does on-chain activity show that ETH is moving to offline cold wallets or what are you seeing in that regard? Uh, I'm not sure about the offline cold wallets, uh, but like one metric that we track internally at one confirmation is a uh, number of uh, unique addresses that hold more than like zero, that hold more than uh, one ETH. So it's kind of a proxy for like how many users believe in ETH um, as um, a digital currency and are, in, and are holding. Um, like that metric has uh, been like going up and to the right over like the past year. So more so than Bitcoin, like the growth rate is much uh, more pronounced than Bitcoin. Uh, so that does support the narrative that uh, there's like more people, whether or not it's institutions or retail that are, are buying ETH. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess like the one thing is obviously ETH is so much cheaper than Bitcoin. So um, the fact that it slowed down for Bitcoin, but not ETH. Uh, probably, I don't, I, uh, so for Bitcoin, uh, we actually track uh, 0.01. So like the dollar oh. value is like still like roughly. Oh, wow. So you can't, you can't compare like one ETH to like, Right. Oh, okay. So even when you make that comparison, then the yeah. accumulation of ETH is still. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, if you, if you take like roughly the uh, the same uh, dollar value of ETH and Bitcoin, the accumulation of ETH is growing at a faster pace than Bitcoin. Oh wow. Oh, interesting. And I guess also in in one way, there's a difference there where, so the the best thing for Bitcoin uh, is kind of if, if just the supply disappears, right? Then no one sort of touches their Bitcoin, if you will, uh, and then that's just like their scarcity. Uh, but kind of Ethereum also want to be used. It's, it's a computer, right? That, that has a bunch of applications that people, uh, it's a good thing if they use it. So, so I think it's in one way, of course, it's good if people sort of invest and believe in, in the currency. 
but you also sort of if we didn't have all of this like on-chain activity that we've been talking about now for the last hour um that would be really bad right you want addresses to engage and, and use these protocols and and like sort of spend their eat on, on gas and, and and be engaged with the, the system as well and i think that's just as important as uh sort of how many are are holding it um and i think i guess so sort of those data points together is is what really tells you it's like there's interesting stuff going on with it right because then if at least for two of the three characteristics of money um is displaying those characteristics one would be as a store of value and the other is as um a medium of exchange so all right so now let's we're running out of time so let's t- touch on layer twos which came up earlier um what are you seeing in terms of the layer two race i did happen to look at uh, a website called l2beat and the top two projects by, by value locked are dydx and loopring both of which use zk rollup technology um uh, you know, fourth is optimism, which uses optimistic rollups. Um, after that, the the value locked was kind of a, a steep drop. So I just was curious, like, what are you guys seeing in terms of metrics when it comes to layer twos? Where do you think that composition competition is going? Yeah, optimistic rollups are like just around the corner. It's like right now, both Arbitrum and Optimism have like kind of private, uh, like quote unquote, soft launches, so like developers can uh, move their DApps over. Although they're still uh, like trading limits, uh, just to like work out the bugs. Uh, so like it hasn't uh, gotten its like full user activity. Like once those launch, uh, then there's going to be a lot of activity on layer two, a lot of volume, as well as, um, like a lot of money that's like moving between layer one and layer two. Um, and like there's actually a project called a hop exchange that's, uh, making, uh, creating like a fast, a nice, uh, UX bridge between layer one and layer two and like between layer two and layer two. Um, in a non-custodial way because uh, kind of the current solutions are all relying on multi-sigs, uh, but uh, those are pretty insecure. Yeah, I, so for Optimism, for instance, the number of transactions has been trending upwards. Uh, it's currently like 30,000 a day, um, but I guess that's like still not that much, actually. It, it seems like it's still, even though these things are kind of live, uh, it's still sort of too early to judge if they're actually getting adoption or like they they need to actually fully release it and and then you need to look at the metrics and see are people actually embracing this um and uh, i think that's going to be one of the key questions for the rest of, of this year to understand um what what that activity actually looks like uh, on the chain and and not just like these concept concepts of how we can scale this but obviously, Loopring has been around for a long time and, and is uh, doing really well as far as I can see. Yeah, and I, I did also see Zero X Labs reported that um, although the... so Because Zero X, I guess, is on Polygon in addition on Ethereum. And it said that the Polygon transaction count exceeds the one on Ethereum. But it said the average trade size on Polygon is about $750. Well, sorry, this was back in July. So uh, this may be old data, but um, so the average trade size on Polygon was $750, but on Ethereum, it was $19,000. So I wonder, you know, do you think um, we are seeing that the layer twos are able to kind of draw in a different user and, and enable new behaviors that are sort of prohibited due to the cost of gas on Ethereum? 
Yeah, absolutely. Like that supports the thesis that like layer twos uh, and side chains are good for uh, the low dollar value, high throughput use cases. If like transaction count is so high, but like the average dollar value being transacted is like also low. Okay. And at the moment, do you feel like there's any layer two that you kind of would put your money on? Uh, well, Polygon isn't quite a layer two. It's it's a side chain, but uh, Polygon is like one that's like probably the only layer two slash side chain that's like has like a decent amount of traction. I, I think uh, I forgot was a curve Ave. Uh, one of the blue chip DeFi projects actually has like more TVL uh, on Polygon than layer one. Mm. Um, so th- there is actually like a uh, real usage uh, on Polygon. Okay. As for layer two, I think Loopring is like the most time tested. If you wanted to do trades, um, it's been battle tested, um, and and they've done a couple of billions at least in billion in volume in trading volume. So yeah. All right, so we'll just have to see how that plays out. Um, earlier this year, there was a lot of hand wringing about competitors like Binance Smart Chain and Solana. Uh, you know, hand wringing amongst the Ethereum set. So what would you say the metrics show in terms of that? Does Ethereum still need to worry about losing market share to these other chains? Uh, with Binance Smart Chain, like a lot of the use cases were around like the DGen yield farming. Uh, so it kind of like De- Ethereum DeFi summer back in like July, August. Uh, and like when that cooled down, then like all that activity just like shifted over to Binance Smart Chain. Uh, so it, it's a lot of like short term uh, trading activity. Uh, but like I haven't really seen any like long term serious projects uh, being built on. Binance Smart Chain. I think a big reason is like credible neutrality is because if the thesis is that institutions are going to adopt uh, blockchain tech cryptocurrencies in a meaningful way, they want to do it on a credible neutral platform like Ethereum, not like CZ or Binance's pet project, um, which is why like Ethereum has uh, that advantage for more institutional adoption of DeFi. So now, but a question for you, because uh, you may have seen that on Twitter the, the week that we are recording this, I released some clips of my last show in which Justin Drake of the Ethereum Foundation, you know, was saying things about Bitcoin. And um, I saw a lot of people, you know, discussing some of the things he said, like, you know, he was bringing up whether or not uh, Bitcoin could safely transition to a model in which it was being secured uh, simply by transaction fees. And then, he, but he also said that he thought Ethereum was Satoshi's vision. Um, so, uh, one thing is that I noticed that a lot of Bitcoiners were saying to me that they thought that, you know, Ethereum was basically centralized and, um, even things like they thought that it was a security, but, uh, the SEC did already come out and say that it wasn't a security. So I'm not sure why they were saying that. Um, but I think they were just trying to imply like they think it's centralized. So what's the difference between why, you know, you, the, the way that you phrased it, you seem to think that Ethereum is not, even though it has like an identifiable creator, whereas you think Binance Smart Chain might be. Well, Binance Smart Chain has only 21 validators and they're all run by uh, Binance. Um, and also, uh, I think a major component of decentralization is like how easy it is for anyone to spin up their own node. And like for Binance Smart Chain, uh, because they increased the, uh, the blocks limit uh, so high, you need to have like a really dedicated hardware setup in order to run a Binance uh, smart chain node in order to sync uh, to the latest block. Whereas for Ethereum, uh, you could even run Ethereum node on a Raspberry Pi um, just because the uh, the sync uh, is it's a, a lot um, more friendly for like 
uh, retail, like hardware. And to, you mentioned also like Solana, and I think that I guess there's a little bit of a difference there where uh, Binance Chain, Binance Smart Chain, so anyone can, in theory, kind of pretty easily move Ethereum stuff over while Solana is like a totally different sort of setup and stack and, and programming language and all of that. And that means that like they, they're kind of taking a harder route, but it also probably makes them more resilient, right? And then like they're building up an ecosystem more from the ground up, um, which I think makes them like a more, more uh, potentially like powerful longer term uh, competition to, to Ethereum. Um, and I think that's like just super healthy that there's something else that also pushing it and trying to make from a, a, a slightly different version of like the future of finance uh, in parallel. And then sort of the pressure is on on, on Ethereum to uh, develop and, and sort of realize its vision as soon as possible. And do you think, so now we're kind of like talking about the, the merge, which is when um, all the activity on Ethereum 1.0 actually finally shifts over to uh, the so-called beacon chain on Ethereum 2. I do, so how do you think that's going to go? And do you think Ethereum, um, you know, like I said earlier, d- does it still need to worry about losing market share to chains like Solana? Probably, hopefully, they should always sort of worry about that. I think it's like kind of you know, any ecosystem sort of is healthy if it, there's some competi- competition going on. Um, so I think that if, if, uh, sort of Ethereum developers and the Ethereum ecosystem just thinks that they've sort of gotten to this unbeatable position, that's probably not a healthy thing for, for that project. So, and, but are you seeing anything on chain that, that makes you think, you know, this is happening? Yeah. So, so currently, no, I'd say it's like still too early. Um, and, uh, these new systems, even though they have, project building on them and, and there are some users, it still seems like it, it's very early. Um, and the, the, the key question is like, can they actually obtain sort of other traffic, I think, or like other usage that's not just like directly sort of uh, forks or, or kind of copies of, of what's happening on, on Ethereum, but something that's like actually theirs and like organically or like by them driven. Um, and, and then that sort of can get momentum and then eventually maybe some someone will sort of move over um but i think it's still too early to tell uh it feels like maybe like ethereum 2015 16 um kind of um in phase of development where it's still just very experimental uh what's being built it seems like they're sort of doing something interesting in in my mind all right so yeah richard did you want to add anything about this transition to ethereum 2.0 proof of stake has been like on the roadmap for like many many years and um, it's good that it's like just around the corner and it's like finally about to launch. Okay. All right. So to wrap up, why don't we each, why don't you each summarize where you think the market will go for the rest of the year uh, when it comes to ETH, DeFi and NFTs? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, as always, uh, predictions are really hard in, in crypto. Um, but I think DeFi has to establish itself as uh, something that's here to stay and, and uh, it might grow you know, might double in, in activity or might not, but I think it's undeniably here at a, a really solid uh, level. Then NFTs, I think, are likely to cool off um, somewhat, but uh, with a lot of interesting activity and attention uh, established, that's going to 
stay there and and be very interesting over time. And I guess for for E, all of this activity is 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 great. So and and EIP one five five nine is great. So I think uh, in general, there I I don't see any reason why it should cool off. Yeah, I would agree with all those points. And I guess in general, uh, with fifteen fifty nine. Uh, now Ethereum is like this kind of an index bet on like all the economic activity that's happening. So whether, uh, we have another DeFi summer and like suddenly like ETH is a lot of ETH is being burned from like transaction volume. Or if you have like all these, uh, avatar projects that are being dropped, uh, and like people are paying ridiculous, ga- ridiculous amounts of gas and like ETH is also capturing value from that. So, um, it, it's a good, um, way for ETH, um, to capture value from like, economic activity regardless of where it comes from all right great so where can people learn more about each of you your respective companies and also different on-chain metrics that they might be interested in for eth DeFi, and nfts so uh yeah we're uh dune.xyc and dune analytics on twitter and we have a few thousand dashboards out there that you can look at and um i'm at haga H-A-G-A, E-T-C, on uh, Twitter. It's not actually Ethereum Classic reference, it's etc. But uh, I, I took that note before <laughs> before uh, E-T-C was a thing. Um, yeah, and one of our top creators is, is uh, Richard. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm top creator on Dune, so I'm Archen8 on Dune if you want to search for all my uh, Dune dashboards and also uh, Richard Chen 39 on Twitter. Okay, perfect. All right, well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Frederick and Richard and also Dune Analytics and One Confirmation, plus also all the different on-chain metrics you might be interested in, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. 